Appreciate it, Coop. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. The president says our withdrawal from Afghanistan was, quote, an extraordinary success. Why? Because America airlifted over 120,000 people in just a few weeks. And that is impressive. In fact, it has never been done before. But perception is often reality in politics. And President Biden's assessment must compete with the fact that the evacuation was forced because why? Because the way America exited threw the place into chaos. Still, Biden says naysayers miss the main point. Some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner. And couldn't this have been done, have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we'd begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport. There is no evacuation, evacuation from the end of a war that you can run without the kinds of complexities, challenges, and threats we faced. None. Compelling. And yet, there were months to prepare. And reportedly, there was intelligence to to suggest there could be a quick collapse. And reportedly, we did not prepare for that or to get our machinery and weapons out so they wouldn't end up in the enemy's hands. And we weren't prepared to retake control of Bagram Airport to speed up the evacuation effort. And a big reason is because we were playing to a deadline that the administration decided had to be honored. And this is a point that Biden insists on. Leaving August the 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. This is going to be a pivot point in terms of perception and reality and the ultimate story of what this means for President Biden's fate and administration. Kabul fell just two and a half weeks ago. If we had stayed a month more until you got out everybody, everyone you promised, would that have amounted to a forever exit? Biden says the options were leave or get in deeper. This ultimate battle of perception on this exit will going to be whether Biden was right to remove all U.S. boots from the ground with as many as 200 American civilians still stuck in Afghanistan and who knows how many allies. Here's his case on that point. Since March, we reached out 19 times to Americans in Afghanistan with multiple warnings and offers to help them leave Afghanistan. All the way back as far as March, our Operation Allied Rescue ended up getting more than 5,500 Americans out. 90% of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. First, an interesting side point. Point of contrast with Trump, Biden said 90%. We checked with the White House, it's actually 98%. He's nothing like his predecessor who would have said he got 115% 
of the people out. Biden accidentally played it down. Now to the real point. No one left behind should mean exactly that. And I'm not telling President Biden anything he doesn't know. He said the same thing a couple of weeks ago. If there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. All is 100%. All that matters now is one question. Now what? And this question will be one that Biden has to answer, answer well, and answer with plans and actions that have so far been in short supply. In the immediate, that means getting everyone out, the Americans and the people you promised, those with those SIV visas and their loved ones. Now, that takes us to somebody who clearly resonated uh, with you. We've had her on the show a couple of times, but last night was heavy. We call her Sarah. She's an American citizen. She's a former interpreter. And she's stuck in Kabul. She didn't even know that the last plane was going out. She has stayed behind because she's trying to help other people whom she says qualifies for SIVs, the special visas, and that she can't get them out and that she's been trying with everybody. Biden and his secretary of state say the government is doing everything it can and will get everyone out who wants to get out. Then why is Sarah being helped mainly by retired veterans? And why is this digital Dunkirk that you may have heard about that's going on online, this ad hoc network of veterans and allies needing to do so much? Tonight, you're going to hear from men who serve this country and who now say those left behind are not being well served. And they may soon be in a hellscape of oppression. Now, Sarah's fate is in part in the hands of the two veterans that you're about to meet. They're doing everything they can and they're working with a lot of other people. I promise you they're not going to want to take credit for anything. Um, and that they know what's going on and they know the challenges. The first is Sam Rogers, a three-tour Afghan war vet. He's a former army intel officer, and he's trying to help those still stuck to get out, Sarah being one of them. Coalition director of the Concerned Veterans for America Foundation. Also racing to save lives, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Wilson, working with the Save, Settle, Support initiative. Gentlemen, first, thank you for your service. And two, thank you for stepping up right now. Sam, let me start with you. We haven't been able to reach Sarah. Uh, You say that that may not be scary information, that that may be part of the plan for her. What do you understand the plan to be? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on, Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to report that we've gotten Sarah to a safe place. Um, where she's got her phone off uh, to avoid additional uh, scrutiny um, for folks who might be looking for American citizens or former translators. Um, you know, my my day job, I didn't really expect to find myself here. My day job with Concerned Vets for America Foundation has been educating Wisconsin communities on this refugee issue, why it's important to veterans, running a, a care package collection for uh, folks coming to Wisconsin, and uh, focusing on veterans' mental health in the midst of this crisis and the end of this conflict. And so to find myself now moonlighting an additional 70 hours a week at night uh, in my former role as an intelligence officer, um, I've essentially, I don't work for an organization. I've just kind of been pulled in by folks, guys and gals I deployed with that I've gone to training with, uh, folks like uh, Colonel Wilson, who I've I've only met as a part of this process. And uh, we're doing it because it has to be done because 
the mission's not over until our American uh, citizens, American citizens and their families and our, and our allies have been brought back. One quick follow. And then I want to get to uh, Colonel Wilson. So is, is Sarah's in a safe place? Is she on her way out of the country? And did she get to bring any of the people with her? So, Chris, um, we hope to have her on her way out of the country in the next couple of days. Um, you know, we would not have been able to do this without some of these great organizations like um, AlliedExtract.org, uh, run by a, another uh, combat veteran of Afghanistan, Gunny Denning, um, uh, Purple Heart recipient, Valor Award recipient. Uh, these guys have financed this stuff uh, essentially on their own personal credit card debt uh, to charter buses and planes and and to connect folks and Understood. get money to folks so they can get out of. Out I'll country. put all the organizations that we're talking about tonight on my social media and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to say them in the handoff awesome. at the end of the show uh, and that people can see them on the screen right now. But just clear, do you know if Sarah's alone or if she got to take any of those kids or people with her? Oh, she's absolutely with her kids. Oh, great, and great. Uh, and we're, we're going to do absolutely every single thing we can. All right, can, so we'll keep uh, looping that in, and home. I'll do all the updates on the show as you want and when I can get Sarah, great. But that's great news, uh, and I'm not feigning being – I didn't know that, so that's really great news. Now, Colonel, uh, the idea of, well, why? Why are you guys doing this? Why are there all these NGOs um, and veterans and digital Dunkirk and jumping in? Why are you guys having to do this? Well, Chris, thanks for being a voice for us and letting us share our story tonight. But I will tell you the reason why we're doing this, and I think uh, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter on earlier with Anderson Cooper, and he he said it exactly. He said, there is no plan. Where's the plan? What's the plan going forward? Uh, we have not witnessed that. And Sam and I were talking earlier, and uh, we both said, we said, we have never heard of all the people that we've been kind of helping and shepherding and marshalling. We've never heard of a formal admittance into the airport through the State Department system. It's all been through these informal networks and people working day and night to get them in. So that's why we're doing it. We've got a mission to do and we will leave no one behind. We, we made that promise to them and we will keep it. So, Colonel, uh, the easy uh, defense is, well, there is no process for this because they didn't plan for this and there are too many people and everybody's scrambling. So there's no blame to be had. What do you believe the reality is? Chris, let me just use an example for you. Earlier on um, Jake Tapper's show, there's the story of my interpreter, Iqbal, and he got out. He's in Virginia, but he didn't get out through the SIV process. He's been trying to get his SIV approved since 2013. And there's been six battalion commanders that he worked with that have been trying to help him facilitate that process, and it didn't work. The only way he got out, was he was a commando. His unit fought its way to the Kabul airport, and he's been helping defend the airport, and they extracted him that way. So the idea that, you know, this is just happening now, I don't buy it. And even if it is just happening now, let's get our head together. Let's make a plan. Let's prioritize. Let's get the information out. And let's, let's, let, let's leverage all of these veterans groups that have communications with SIV people to get them in the right place at the right time. Let me get uh, one suggestion from each of you, because you've been studying this, obviously. You're obviously bright guys. Um, so let me start with you, Colonel, and then I'll finish with Sam. The idea of what could they do that would make things better? Uh, if I could offer two, Chris, number one is get a system of information out that lets Afghans know how to check their status, whether they're close to the top and they, there's some hope and they should stay in place, or that because they just recently applied, they need to start seeking options to get to a third country to get safe until we can get them in the queue. Uh, the second thing I would suggest to the State Department is leverage us. There are tens of thousands of veterans, a virtual army of us, we're all working independently. I've been suggesting that we all kind of merge and Sam and I are gonna talk later about merging our efforts so that we're not committing organizational fratricide. 
and leverage us. I'll be happy to take 25 to 30 packets. I have a security clearance. I can communicate with Afghans and I'm willing to do it. And I know Sam is, and I know every single veteran out there is willing to do the same thing. So now let me pick up on the Colonel's point, Sam. I keep hearing about these packets. Uh, I hear it from uh, an interpreter that we're working with here on the state side. We're covering him about his efforts to get people out. I'm filling out the paperwork, but I don't know where to give it in the State Department. Or I got the packet in and they say they got it. But, but now I haven't heard anything. And should the people stay at the airport? What are these packets and what do you think could work better than what's happening now? Well, you know, I honestly, I think there's going to be a lot of time afterwards to dissect everything from the last 20 days to the last 20 years that has gone wrong as a part of this. Um, you know, these packets are personal information. They're extremely detailed, um, you know, but half the time they can't even load the State Department website on their phone because of the quality of Internet um, in Kabul. If they're outside of Kabul, they may never have the opportunity to upload those things. Uh, and then you've got the combined risk of, you know, reports that the United States government has potentially shared those uh, those packets uh, with the Taliban, uh, which has sent many of these folks into a panic and has made some of them unwilling to try to even attempt to put them together because it puts them at risk. Now, I haven't been able to track that down. And in fact, there is reporting out there that suggests that was never done. But look, the fear is enough. And what is your fear, Sam? Let's end on this. What's going to happen in the days and weeks ahead in, in terms of this ability of the United States to control what the Taliban does? What's your fear? It's going to continue to be reduced. And instead of taking deliberate, decisive action to remedy this and to get these folks out of there, we're going to point fingers and argue with each other instead of simply just coming together and creating solutions to bring our people home, bring our Americans home, their families home. These, these translators, a translator saved my life in my first deployment. And I won't stop until we've got these folks home. And I, I hope the government, for all of its resources and capabilities, it'd be nice if they would do it. All right. So look, me. we're brothers in this effort now. You guys are doing the work and I'll talk about you. That's the deal. Sam Rogers, Lieutenant Colonel Dan Wilson. Uh, I know you're working with scores and scores of people. I know you're not here to take the glory. I asked you to come on to help understand the situation better because I kept hearing about it and I wanted the audience to hear about it as well. We'll be in touch. I'll put the names of the organizations out uh, and I am a phone call away at all times. Gentlemen, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing for Sarah and countless others. Appreciate you. you. Now. Thanks, Chris. Look, that's the reality. Okay, if you look online, you'll see hashtag digital Dunkirk. Okay, Dunkirk, you you know what it's a reference to, right? This kind of uh, amazing rescue mission of guys doing it for themselves. It's happening here. And it does speak to how screwed up the situation is. That men like this, women like this too, by the way, obviously, are taking it on their own because these people mean so much to them because as you just heard Sam say, an interpreter kept me alive. All of us have this thing that these people just do language. It's not. It's logistics. It's understanding culture. It's understanding warning signs. It's understanding threats. It's understanding people. And they did all of it knowing that their families and them were as good as dead if the enemy could find them. And no matter how hot it was, every time I've seen an interpreter, they're all covered up to here. Covered up more than any of the women. Fear. But they did it anyway. Now, what will we do for them? These men are giving their answer every day. What about the rest of us? What about our government? That takes us back to the president. He does deserve scrutiny. That, that's being president, okay? 
You made decisions. There are consequences. We're seeing them. But when you watch the party of Trump, all right, they want to talk about who has high ground here. You are rewriting history, my brothers and sisters. You are selling fear and lies built on hypocrisy again. You are right to care about the people over there. But that concern needs to be consistent. Has it? Here are the facts next. So today, the House Freedom Caucus members, suddenly they can't sleep. American allies being left behind in Afghanistan. Listen to the pain. I go to bed at night. I wake up during the night. I wake up in the morning thinking about the families that have lost loved ones over there. And in addition, the Americans we left, the allies we abandoned, the Christians that are going to be murdered, tortured and murdered, and the women and girls. One, Congressman Miller knows, we can just check the record. If you're so concerned about them, you probably shouldn't have liked the deal that was made with the guys who are going to do all the horrible things, you said, right? We can always just check, like when people caught her quoting Hitler. But this is a different sin. Faking fidelity to a cause. Right-wingers are now pleading the case of refugees, while many condemn those fleeing persecution south of our border. And even now, some try to scare folks by saying Biden wants to bring millions of Afghans here. But if they really care, why did 60 of them refuse to condemn Trump when he abandoned our Kurdish allies to withdraw forces from Syria? Why didn't they go after this deal with the Taliban? Since then, the UN has told us about what happened with the Kurds, that those who fought along U.S. troops to stop ISIS have paid dearly. But the Freedom Caucus's own, their actions, they dispel any idea that they've seen the error of their ways. It was pretty much the same group that voted against speeding up visas for Afghans fleeing the Taliban. You do remember that, right? You do remember that the Trump administration, with the tacit approval of these people, if not the outright approval, made it harder for people to get visas. It was part of his designed Muslim ban. Some of those people who had a hard time were interpreters, allies, and their families. And again, for many, their nightmares change. The moment you mention bringing these men and women here, listen. I'm not going to be responsible for seeing our little uh, girls uh, raped and killed in the streets because we wanted to uh, uh, bring people that uh, are poorly vetted into the United States. I have uh, other former intel that are telling me people that are being brought in here, there is a significant percentage that are future Boston Marathon bombers. Afghanis are brought into this country, making once again every town a border town, every city a dangerous border city. I got to ask him, do refugees do anything other than rape and murder? Look, this is a grotesque and ugly exaggeration. It's also half of our political process, right? This many rank and file members of Congress They don't come together on their own. This is the problem with this disease of this dichotomy. Democrats and Republicans, left and right, the binary thing, opposition is a position. As long as the other side sucks, you've got to be okay. And until that system is gone, the least we can do is just expose how rife it is with fraud. 
This is a play, and it's coming straight from the top. Kevin McCarthy in the House, who on Friday endorsed pulling all U.S. troops out. Did you hear this? I don't think people are arguing about whether we should have left or not in Afghanistan. Now, you know what I should have done? I should have queued up him saying that same thing about, I don't think anybody's questioning the legitimacy of the election. You know, Biden, Joe Biden won. And then he doesn't want to certify the race. He's doing all this other kind of propaganda to hurt it. This is the same thing. I don't think anybody's talking about it. Oh, yeah? Then why does he say this? And if the military believes the best place to be there, I have said publicly before, I would not have closed Bagram. The time place is what they did. I thought nobody was arguing about everybody had to leave. And look, this isn't about whether or not we should have stayed in Bagram. I've been on record here. I take the advice of many in the military who said they should have kept a presence there, that it makes sense we have presences like that in many other places, and that Bagram may have been a base that was worth keeping. I'm fine with that idea, but that's not what he said. So how do they stomach such obvious and obnoxious hypocrisy? You know why? Because they're afraid. And if there are any Republicans who have any doubt, know that you will be facing your own primaries. That's scary. (laughs) Seriously, that's scary. You know why? Because it's real, not just a snarl. That's a real threat. For some, at least, this isn't about Joe Biden. It's not about Biden any more than it's about the men and women in harm's way in Afghanistan. Damn sure ain't about making sure we'll never see another 9-11. Again, I keep saying this. If you don't think 20 years without something that we thought was going to be the new normal has nothing to do with the fact that we were in Afghanistan, I think you got to keep doing your research. What this whole scare tactic and the hypocrisy is about on the right, it's about sending a clear message to their own. No matter what you've said or believed in the past, you are either on the team or you are dead. And it is a toxic team in a dirty game that is literally ruining this country. Now, let's move into the electeds and start talking to members of Congress. Seth Moulton, a little bit of controversy because of trip to Afghanistan last week. He says, I don't care about the controversy. I needed to see it. And it changed his mind about things and made him understand the situation. So what does he think of the president's defense of the handling of the war's end? And what does he think? Next has to be. Next. Despite promises from the United States to people like Sarah, we have no diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. And do we really have leverage with the Taliban? Well, we got money. Is that enough? There's not even a functioning airport or a plan to get the one in Kabul up and running again. So we must keep asking those in power, how, how, now what, now what? How are they going to help those still trying to escape in Afghanistan? And then at some point in the future, we're going to get to, and how are you going to keep this country as safe without a real presence there? Now, on the first question, the immediate one, let's go to a member of Congress who recently took an unauthorized trip to the Kabul airport, uh, Congressman Seth Moulton. Congressman, welcome back. Good to be back, Chris. What do you make of the president's assessment that the withdrawal was an enormous success? Well, in many respects, it was an enormous success in terms of the number of people we evacuated. Uh, But it it didn't have to wait so long. It didn't have to cause, uh, cost the lives of 12 Marines and and a sailor. We could have done this in a much more orderly way if we had simply 
gotten started earlier. But the bottom line is, Chris, we're going to have a lot of time to debate that, to examine it, to have hearings in Congress and everything else. What we need to be focused on right now is that the over 100,000 people that we evacuated are now sitting in refugee camps where they don't even have enough food and water. That was the second stop on our trip. From Kabul, we went to Kuwait and to Qatar. And there are amazing numbers of refugees sweltering in warehouses for aircraft parts that are barely air-conditioned, running out of food and water, uh, can't even feed their kids. So what are we doing about it? We're not doing enough. And that's one of the things we call the tension to. Uh, I know there's uh, more effort being put in now. I mean, one of the problems we heard from the State Department was that administration lawyers were just in the way of getting donations into the camps. I think that's now been fixed. By the way, it's another great story of American heroism. Uh, Airmen who were sent around the globe to go refuel aircraft are now running a refugee camp. They're not prepared for it. They're not trained for it. But they're making it happen. And we need to make sure we're delivering them more support. You know, I just had these guys on the show. And as you know, this hashtag digital Dunkirk and all these veterans. I mean, you know, you're part of that community. So you hear about these guys. I got to tell you, on one hand, that's why you guys are the best of us. On the other hand, why the hell do these guys and the women and everybody who are working together, why do they have to do this? You have this humongous State Department and all these procedures and people and all these supposed resources. What's going on here, Congressman? Well, it is an amazing story of veterans' commitment to our allies and of American ingenuity. Uh, But unfortunately, it's also a story of bureaucratic failure. Uh, we've been asking for months for how to just get these applications accelerated so that people can start leaving the country as they do through any embassy in the world in an orderly process. Uh, But it wasn't until very late in the game that the state gave us an email address. Uh, It crashed a few hours after they gave it to us. And one of the things we discovered in Kabul is that one of the biggest burdens on our troops were the thousands of requests coming in from members of Congress and members of the administration that were not organized or prioritized or anything else. So again, we'll have time to get into this, but uh, it is both a story of bureaucratic failure, of Washington's failure, and a story of amazing American ingenuity in the veterans community. And I'm very proud of the, my office alone got 3,000 requests because of some of my connections on the ground, including ones that I made in Kabul we were able to save people right up to the last day. Uh, but one the, of the last Marines... chapter of the story of this first phase, Congressman, is going to be about what happens right now. Do you That's have right. any confidence that the State Department really, whether it's because you guys are going to hold back money that the Taliban may want, do you really believe you can get those guys to do anything the right way for the people who are still there? When we keep hearing reports, I'm sure you're hearing them, that they're hunting these people. They are, they are hunting these people, and I know that from firsthand accounts. And so this is the second big thing that we need to do, Chris, is one, we need to take care of the refugees in these camps. Two, let's not forget that there are a lot of people that we left behind, a few hundred American citizens, but thousands of allies that we weren't able to rescue. And the whole idea is that we'll have some leverage with the Taliban to ensure their safe passage Uh, down the road now that the Taliban controls the country and we don't have any presence there whatsoever. But as a member of Congress, as a member of the House Armed Services Committee, we haven't seen that plan yet. And one of the reasons why we need to keep asking questions is to understand exactly how this is going to work. You know, I I spent so many sleepless nights 
as have so many veterans in America over the past couple weeks, getting people out, often coordinating directly with troops on the ground to get them over the wall or through the gate. I, I told my wife the other day that I would finally get a full night's sleep once the withdrawal was complete. But I was up all night trying to get people out now because the people who were left behind are trying to figure out what they do next. We don't even know what to tell them. So there's still a lot of work to do to uphold our promises. Got to stay on it, Congressman. You got this as a platform to talk about what you hear is going to be done and that we can hold it to be accounted for and follow up because the answer to that question is going to mean a lot, not just to the veteran community, not just to Americans who are embarrassed by this, but it's going to mean a lot to your party and your president uh, coming into the midterms. Congressman Seth Moulton, thank you very much for coming on and uh, speaking truth. Thank you, Chris. All right. There's some good news. All right. It's a lot of bad news. There's some good news. And it's on COVID. The Wizard of Odds is going to come in and he's going to show you what we believe could be a shift in mindset of those who've been holding out on getting vaxxed. What are the numbers and what is an emerging story of our potential trajectory? The Wiz, next. Now, you may have heard the baseline assessment, which is that when it comes to vaccinations, the United States population is just over half fully vaccinated. Okay, now we need that number to be higher. We don't know how high. There is no magic number. There is no herd immunity number. They should never suggest that there was one. There is hope that we may get to a better place sooner rather than later. Why? New data from research firm Ipsos reveals that hesitancy may be dropping. How do they know? Because the number of adults who say they will never get a first dose is now down to 14 What's the context? What does it mean going forward? How else do we build on it? Let's bring in the whiz to break down the numbers. Take me through the first part. I'll take you through the first part. Here's the big news, and that is that the percentage of adults who have gotten a first vaccine continues to climb higher and higher and higher. Look at this. In early January, we're just at 3%. Late April, 50%. Late June, 66%. Now, 74% of all adults have at least gotten one shot. At the same time, the percentage of adults who say they're unlikely to get a vaccine has dropped in half since January. So it's not just the people that we're reaching now who all along said I would get it as soon as it became available to me. It's also people who initially said, I'm not going to get this vaccine. And we've now convinced them to, in fact, either get it or say, I want to get it as soon as possible. So let's play to American, not American for a second and put some shine on 74 percent. How big a number is that? It's a huge number. You know, I like talking about good news. Look at the smile on my face. This number is as American as wanting to have a tree in your home at Christmas time. About 75% of Americans have a tree in their home at Christmas time. It's more American than having a pet in your home. Only about 61% of Americans do. And look at that, 74% of Americans have received at least one COVID vaccine dose among adults. So this is a large number. You know, I can't always hear these negatives. This is a positive. Right. So that's good. Um, but now our focus is on kids and they are not as uh, vaccinated. Uh, obviously, under a certain age, they can't even get vaccinated yet. But what do we see when we look at that group? Yeah, look, let's look at the eligible group, 12 to 17 year olds. Right. And what do we see? Again, what we see is rising vaccination rates. Look at this. Have at least one dose. In early June, it was only about 27 percent. 
in early August, at the beginning of this month, it was only about 43%. Now it's up to a majority, about 52%. And if you ask the parents of the 12 to 17 year olds, will you definitely not allow your kid to get vaccinated? Look at that. The percentage has dropped in half from early June when it was just 33% to now just 16% now. So the same story we saw with adults, we're seeing with kids with more people getting vaccinated and fewer people saying, I'm gonna hold out and not in fact get a vaccine. Now you told me something in the office about how, uh, you didn't want me to forget to ask about how where we're seeing people get vaccinated corresponds uh, with the states where we needed to see that most and that's the best kind of sign you can see. Yeah, look, the South has been hit particularly hard by the COVID, by the Delta variant, right? Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida. These were states that were hit really, really hard. Look at where they rank in terms of August vaccinations among adults. Look at that. Second, third, fourth, and fifth. More of these folks have gone out and got vaccinated. Now look at their case rate change over the last week. Look, in Mississippi, fewer new cases this week than the prior week. Arkansas, the same thing. And in Alabama and Florida, we're pretty steady. So we're right at the top of that curve. We're not getting that exponential growth that we were earlier on in the pandemic when Delta was coming. And the other thing I'll note is the growth rate in all four of these states is less than the growth rate that we're seeing nationally, which is quite the change from where we were a month ago. That's interesting. The most vulnerable area is now not the most vulnerable in terms of case growth. That is cause for hope. Harry Enton, The Wiz, thank you. I try and bring the good news occasionally. You succeed. Thank you, sir. My next guest has some words for the unvaccinated. Caught a lot of eyeballs on TikTok and for the right reasons. Unfortunately, his wife just died, but not from COVID. She was fighting cancer and she wasn't able to fight it the way the family wanted to because of COVID, because of who was in the hospital, which meant she couldn't be in the hospital. He's here. I want you to talk to a husband, to a father about how he lived the reality here and what he wants people to know. Next. We just brought you the good news. More people are getting the vaccine and in the places we need them to. But there's still a ways to go. Look at North Carolina. Few than half the people there, few than half, are fully vaccinated. It's below the national average I just mentioned. Saturday, the state hit a record high number of hospitalizations, not just cases. It's been skyrocketing since June. The number remains steady. You see the proof. Fewer shots in arms means more people in the hospital. Correlation is causation. Packed hospitals are a problem, not just because for future COVID patients, but everybody else who's sick and fighting for their lives. One North Carolina husband says his wife, a stage four cancer patient, was a tragic example of what happens when hospitals are too full of vaccinated people. He pleaded, unvaccinated people, obviously, unvaccinated people are taking up beds when they get sick in the hospitals. And he pleaded with the non-vaccinated in a TikTok video. Have you seen this? Last week, I had to bring my wife into the hospital. She has stage four breast cancer. She was dealing with some symptoms. Instead of draining her fluid and what they wanted to do, they had to dis, they told us that she had to be discharged because they had no room left in the hospital because of COVID. 99% of everybody that's in the hospital with COVID right now is unvaccinated. What I am gonna argue with about is you running to the hospital once you get the virus. If you don't trust the medical field to prevent you from getting it, why do you trust them to cure you from it? He was right, but the resonance goes far beyond his reasoning. 
His wife has since passed. And Jason Arena joins us now. First of all, brother, all that matters to me is I'm so sorry for your loss. I know you got three girls. I know this has to be very hard. And I hope the family uh, is coping well and leaning on one another. We are, we are, we are coping as best as we can. Marilyn, Marilyn was an important person to a lot of people. So. And I know it was a long fight and um, I know it was hard on you. And I know that you weren't looking to be yes. some political agent. So tell people, what made you make that video? Um, well, it, it all transpired from uh, a series of events that happened um, when I had to bring my wife into the hospital. Um, she was having severe symptoms. Um, ascites, jaundice, um, she was having trouble breathing because of the amount of fluid that, that she had on her. So I brought her into the hospital 4.30 in the morning. Um, there was two people in the waiting room with us. Um, they didn't end up bringing her into the back until 8.30 a.m. After numerous complaints from me, um, they would just told me that they had no rooms available to bring anybody that was, or everybody that was in the ER was already admitted into the hospital and there was no rooms available upstairs to bring them into so my wife could go into the back. We put an oxygen mask on her and she sat in a wheelchair for four hours in the waiting room. Once we got into the back, like the staff does a tremendous job. Once they can see you, I mean, they're dealing with whole, the hospital's full. So they're overworked as well. Um, they treated her well. They got her comfortable. They drained some fluid off. They didn't really know what was going on with her. They wanted to run some testings because her symptoms came on very, very, very quick. And um, what had happened was we ended up waiting in the ER room. Once they finished all of the testing, that was they finished by about noontime, one, one, one o'clock. We didn't get upstairs until nine, until 9.30 that night. And um, she didn't get comfortable until 10.30 p.m. We got, we got to the hospital at 4.30 a.m. Uh, finally, she went to sleep. They got her comfortable. She went to sleep. And um, the following day, they were still doing testing. They thought maybe she had a bile duct block and that was causing her symptoms. They could put a stent in. They were doing further testing. They didn't want to send her home because her symptoms were still causing her pain. The following day, the GI specialist comes in at about 10 a.m. Um, and tells us that there's a chance that they're going to send us home but they wanted to drain more fluid off first. They wanted to drain as much fluid as they could off of her. They wanted to do another scan. So when they wound up uh, sending her, sent home, her home, Jace, when they wound up sending her home, yes, because they needed that the day they sent her home. Yes. And that kind they of sent, hit they, you, that we got, we got to get the beds for the COVID people. Well, that hit me hard because she wasn't comfortable. They didn't drain right. the fluid before they sent her home. And she suffered for the following two two days until I could get an appointment at an out, at an outpatient center to get her fluid drained off. She suffered for two additional days because she got checked out of the hospital early and I know why they did it. It's a logical choice for the doctor. My wife was, was stage four breast cancer. She had severe, she had severe symptoms. They've seen her scan. They did a scan. They saw her blood. blood but work. they were forced they into the position. She's going to pass. And they are in a position where they need to cut people that they can't help any further and try to get people out of the ER because if we're waiting 13 hours, so is everybody else. I just wanted to tell you something. You know? I yes. know your wife is gone, but yes. the passion that she inspired in you uh, to fight for her, it's, to fight for other people resonated all over this yes. country. 
And I hope your girls, you know, they're tender ages, 18, 16, nine. My kids are almost the exact same age. I hope someday I can be an example to my kids of standing up for the right thing the way you were. God bless the family. Thank you. I'm a call away if you need anything. And I just wanted to thank you in person for putting the message out that you did. And I'm sorry for your loss, brother. Yeah. Thank thank you, Chris. Jason, be well. We'll be right back. Thanks. Let's get right to Don Lemon tonight with its big star, D. Lemon. Um, sorry, I ate into the time there, but I had... No, it's uh, very important. You don't have to explain. You don't have to tell me. I, listen, here's how I feel about that. If you're not going to get vaccinated, you don't want to social distance, you don't want to wear a mask, then maybe you don't want to go to the hospital when you get sick. I know that sounds harsh, but you're taking up the space for people who are doing things the right way. You and I both agree on this is going to be between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated moving forward in this country. And I just think if you don't want to play by any of those rules and then all of a sudden you end up in the hospital, I feel bad that you, but maybe you shouldn't go and take up the resources from someone else. That's it. So you don't have to apologize for taking up the time. I I I just, I felt, I feel so bad for him. You know, our kids are almost the same age. Three girls he has, obviously we got the two girls and Mario, but 18, 16 and nine their mother fighting like that, the father feeling like the only thing he could do is just plead to people to understand what they're mm-hmm, doing, what mm-hmm, they're taking mm-hmm. from families. That time is so precious. Stage four cancer, any time you can get with your kids at that age, with your husband. Yep. I just, I just don't know what's going to get through to people. I mean, that is just, it just destroys me that that whole life is forever changed by something that didn't have to happen. I'm not saying that that's why this woman succumbed to cancer, but I'm saying the end is so important. But let me tell you, having experience, listen, you know you had COVID. I think you have, do you agree that you have long haul as well, right? I absolutely okay. still have stuff. So you understand it. I understand it from visiting the hospitals with people. I've seen the COVID wards. They weren't COVID wards until a short time ago. And every single person who works there, from the head of the hospital on down to the, the person who's ever, the people who are really keeping things going, who are cleaning up the mess. If you know what I mean, I won't be graphic about that. Every single person will tell you they're exhausted. They barely have time to take off, to spend with their own families. They're worried about catching COVID uh, and a different variant. It is putting a stress and strain on the system and people all over this country because some people who are so selfish are saying, it's my freedom and I don't want to get vaccinated. I don't want to do that. Okay, fine. But think about someone other than yourself. And if you don't believe that COVID is real and that can, it can affect your health and possibly take your life, don't go to the hospital then when you get sick. Don't take up the resources from other people who are playing by the rules, getting vaccinated, social distancing, and putting their lives on the line to try to take care of the people who are there. That's all I'm saying. That's how I feel. And I, I love no you, apologies. D. Lemon. Love you, brother. Get off my high horse, but it is the truth. Thank you, brother. I'll see you soon. I got breaking news to get to. So, I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.